this is Prophets from the Ground Up by Ross McAllister. It's chapter three in the book called The Real Book of Real Estate. Real experts, real stories, real life. It's the second edition, 2016, by the number one best-selling author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, with 20 of his trusted real estate experts. Yesterday, we finished up Chapter 2, which was by um, Charles W. Lotzar, which is Robert Kiyosaki's advisor, uh, he's an attorney, and it was called A Real Estate Attorney's View of Assembling and Managing Your Team. That's also here on Colin. And um, I also have now in my possession uh, one of his advisors who was the first section that we read in the book um, by Tom Wheelwright. And um, Tom Wheelwright is Robert Kiyosaki's rich dad investor. Um, he's an accountant. And that section was called The Business of Real Estate, which is also here on Colin. The book from Tax Wheelwright that I have before me is called Tax-Free Wealth, How to Build Massive Wealth by Permanently Lowering Your Taxes. So, let's see. Um, I just sent an invitation to everybody, because why not? I haven't done that before, but I've got uh, some folks who want to check it out. So this book is called Tax-Free Wealth. How to, well, though not the one I'm going to read. I'm just uh, passing some time to repopulate the room here. And How to Build Massive Wealth by Permanently Lowering Your Taxes by Tom Wheelwright, CPA. It's also in a second edition. Um, this was published, uh, this, this second edition was published in 2018 by Imaginative Investments, LLC. Um, and it's uh, on the back cover it says our taxes your largest single expense they don't have to be do you hate taxes feel like there's nothing you can do about them dread tax season each year in tax-free wealth tom wheelwright robert kiyosaki's personal tax advisor teaches you in plain english how to use the tax code to make you richer taxes often steal people's dreams and retirement Tax-Free Wealth explains how to use the tax laws as a roadmap for reducing ta your taxes and increasing your wealth. Tom Wheelwright, CPA, founder and CEO of WealthAbility. Um, a little bit of marketing here. It says over 300,000 copies sold. In Tax-Free Wealth, you'll learn why governments want you to pay less taxes, why investors and entrepreneurs get all the breaks, not to fear an audit and how to survive one, and how to use your tax savings to build tremendous wealth. Federal Second Cir Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Learned Hand, anyone may so arrange his affairs so that his taxes shall be as low as possible. He is not bound to choose that pattern which will best pay the treasury. There is not even a patriotic duty to increase one's taxes. Which Dad said, business and investing are team sports. Robert Kiyosaki. This is the Rich Dad Advisor series of books. has sold over 2 million copies worldwide as to how 
as the how-to content for Rich Dad Poor Dad. Tax-Free Wealth focuses on key aspects of taxes, personal finance, and strategies for building wealth that impact the legal systems and cash flow sections of Rich Dad's BI Triangle, which is the Business Owner Investors Triangle. Rich Dad Advisor Series, 18 books of business and asset class specific content that support Robert's Rich Dad content is written by his personal advisors who are experts in their field. All right. This. Right here. All right. So I'm going to be ready to go, but first, I suppose, um, while I'm doing this, I might as well get this book right now. Or maybe wait. All right. Well, let's take a look. Going to get right into this um, from uh, this is uh, Ross McAllister, McAllister, Chapter Three, Profits from the Ground Up. This introduction here is um, by Robert Kiyosaki. Ross is Ken McElroy's partner in their business MC Properties. Kim and I are often financial partners with Ken and Ross in a number of their projects and have done very well financially, even in tough economic times. There are three primary reasons why our investments with Ross do so well. The first reason is that he is a builder. He understands the ins and outs of the construction industry. Second, he is a property manager. This is important because the key to long-term investing in real estate is professional property management. And third, Ross is an exceptional is exceptional at finance by managing the ratios between debt, equity, and expenses. When it comes to real estate investing, he is the complete package. On top of that, he is a great guy. He is fair and honest. In 2002, when the Tucson uh, when the Tucson apartment market was hot, Ross's background allowed us not only to do well buying existing apartment houses, but also building new apartment houses. One of our first investments together was the purchase of an existing apartment complex this company was managing. This gave us an advantage because we knew the numbers were honest which is important since most pro forma numbers provided by realtors are lies. Second, the property had an additional 10 acres of vacant land. Once we bought the existing apartment house, our next step was to begin construction on additional 100 units for the vacant land. Then, with the increased rents a few years later, Ross refinanced the property and Kim and I got all of our initial investment money back. This means each month we receive a check from the positive cash flow, and Kim and I have zero invested in the project. If you do the math, this means Kim and I have an infinite return on our money. In layman's terms, an infinite return is truly money for nothing every month. This is why Kim and I love being partners with Ross McAllister and Ken McElroy. 
Robert Kiyosaki. So that was from Robert Kiyosaki, and moving on, this is Ross McAllister's Profits from the Ground Up. Perhaps you've already read, and maybe even reread, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, as well as my partner Ken McElroy's book, uh, The Advanced Guide to Real Estate Investing, and now you're ready to take the plunge and invest in real estate on your own. That's probably why you bought this book, written by real estate professionals, each of whom have been earning their livings in real estate for decades. There are pages in this book that are full of tremendous opportunities and innovative ways to make money in real estate. But one avenue of investment you may not have thought of and may want to consider is to develop your own project from the ground up. The profits you have heard about from real estate development are mind-boggling. And if you are like most people, the numbers leave you frothing at the mouth for a piece of the development pie. Yes, there is tremendous tremendous profit to be made from real estate development. But as with any high reward venture, there is also the possibility of tremendous financial losses if you don't know what you are doing. In this chapter, I will outline some of the steps you need to take to evaluate a development opportunity, steps I've gleaned from my expertise in developing apartment communities during the last or the, during the past three decades and from some 20 plus projects of about 4,000 units. And because my, experiments, my experience is primarily in apartment development, this is what we will talk about. However, these fundamentals apply to any commercial development, such as office or retail, and to any size apartment community, be it four or 400 units. For me, development from the ground up is the most exciting way to invest in real estate. Okay, for me, development from the ground up is the most exciting way to invest in real estate. There are few professional accomplishments more rewarding than to see a project go from conception to reality. And it's even better when that project produces positive financial results. Yet with that said, nothing can be more frustrating than working for years, yes years, to start your project and battling through environmental and governmental regulations market conditions, financial institutions, and your own continuous questioning about whether all this frustration and risk is worth it. That side of the business is a reality too, even for those of us who have many projects already under our belts. I know you can see yourself as the owner of that perfect corner lot at Maine and Better Maine, graced with a structure and a monument sign bearing the name you have been dream dreaming about for years. Maybe it's, insert your dream name here, in large letters on the monument sign in front. Let's see. Maybe it's Uniquilibrium in large letters on the monument sign in the front. You can see all the happy families living there, and you can hear the ka-ching of the cash register as the rents roll in every month. But before you build that sign or take that cash to the bank, let's talk about some of the decisions you must first make before you consider embarking upon this adventure. Tip, 
The main lesson I have learned in 30 years of apartment development is that each project is unique and different. Each will bring its own set of opportunities and challenges. Before you call me when you are in the middle of your next development and say, but Ross, you didn't tell me I would need an environmental impact study on the duck-billed humpback pygmy field mouse. Remember, I did tell you that something always comes up to make your project harder than you thought it would be. A clear vision. From the beginning, for any project to be truly successful, you need to have a clear vision of what you want to build and how developing this property meets your own objectives. That means you also need to actually have objectives, or better said, you need a you need solid understanding of what you want this project to achieve. One of the reasons MC Companies, the company Ken and I own, has been successful in development is that we have an infrastructure in place within our firm to develop, construct, manage, and profitably operate multifamily communities. We are careful to select communities large enough to support an on-site staff, earn economies of scale, and that fit within our investment model. We are careful to keep our egos in check and build for the market rather than for our own self-esteem. When we take on a new development, we draw upon each and every one of those disciplines, development, construction, and management from inception to ensure that we make good decisions in the present because we know they will impact the future. This inclusive team approach is crucial to the successful development and operation of our multifamily communities. If you do not have expertise in all these areas, then it's in your best interest to create a team whose members do have the expertise in each of these fields before you venture into multifamily investments, whether you are building a duplex or 400 units. Develop for the long term. Without exception, we build communities with the full intent of operating them once they are done. If the market is strong and the right buyer knocks on our door after the development is complete, we have an alternate option to make money on the investment, but we don't enter a project with this in mind. It takes many months or years from the time we create the vision of our finished community to the time when we collect even a dollar in rent from the first tenant. To predict what the market will be like at the finish line is not always possible, but if you plan to own and operate the project after it is built and use those numbers in your pro forma, you begin with a more solid platform a better business premise from which to launch your development, lease it up, and operate the community profitably. Let's look at the other scenario from the point of view of building and selling rather than building and operating. What if the market changes from the time you planned your development to the time it is built and ready for you to operate? If you have not planned on operating it from the beginning, the likelihood of you recognizing changes, knowing how they affect your project, and then making the necessary adjustments are slim. In the end, you may find yourself holding an obsolete project or one that would require some serious adjustments to fit the new market conditions. My examples are not entirely hypothetical. In the spring of 2006, the apartment market was hot, and any project completed could be sold for a big profit. Many developers began projects with the idea that they could cash in upon completion with an immediate sale. So. Thousands of units were developed and built over the next two years.
built over the next few years. In 2008, banks had changed their, their qualification and ratios for loans, and their credit criteria changed dramatically too. Investor money was not readily available either. Economic conditions have deteriorated, resulting in higher employment and a tight economy. The market for new apartments was, at best, weak. Investors were demanding lower purchase prices to compensate for the slower economy. Hello, Danny and BK. How you doing? I just saw you just sent me some text messages, eh? The invite. Oh, okay. Let me take that again. There we go. Um, sometimes, um, BK, what you can do is is call in, and then I'll invite you right there. So I'm going to put you here, and then sometimes it works better if I invite you from the hot seat. So try that now. Let's see if that works. All right. Yeah, I'll just hang out here. Okay. Well, I invited you from the hot seat, so sometimes it works better from there. I don't know. Um, it's like since it said something went wrong with the invite, and now I'm not seeing him anymore. But it's whatever. It's cool. Keep going. Well, uh, also, another thing you can do is um, leave the room and come back, and sometimes that uh, that works. I've done that before, too. So, <clears throat> just so you know. All right. Um, continuing. Consequently, many developers found themselves sitting in their shiny new properties in a down economy. Let me give Danny here. So, Danny, you might look out and see if there's anybody popping up. I just made you moderator. All right. Consequently, many developers found themselves sitting on their shiny new properties. What's up, Danny? Yeah. Oh, you're good. And then, um, like I said, PK, if you want to try out the... Um, Um, leaving the room, BK, and coming back, that, that might help. All right. Consequently, many developers found themselves sitting in their shiny new properties in a down economy with cautious investors, reluctant banks, and a weak market for the product. All the assumptions they had made two years prior were based on factors that no longer applied because they didn't develop their projects with the idea that they were going to operate them. They created a scenario independent on a sale or they created a scenario dependent on a sale and ripe for financial disaster. Ken and I have avoided this situation because we plan from the start to operate the communities once they are completed, and we make sure all our actions are consistent with our investment objectives. Consequently, we have been able to adjust to market changes and ride out the difficult times, all the while building long-term value. So the reason why this section is called Profits from the Ground Up is because they're talking about profiting from building and operating um, apartment buildings, not just building them and selling them or even doing something simpler like we're doing, which is to um, find something already extant, preferably with already filled with um, what the real estate market says are good payers and long stayers, meaning people who pay the rents on time and have been there for a long time. Tip. I don't believe that it is possible to hit a real estate cycle perfectly. If you do, it's luck. Building value from real estate development over the long term takes skill and expertise. It also takes an operator's eye to recognize market shifts and a mindset that is open to change. 
your market niche focus. Just as you simply must have your objectives for development in place, you must decide which market niche your, pro your apartment project or other project will fill. Here are the basics I consider when looking for a market niche. What are the demographics of the area you're considering? Oh, that's cool. Danny, were you able to make, are you, are you as a moderator also able to make other people moderators? Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, here are the basics I would consider when looking for a market niche. What are the demographics of the area you're considering? What is the salary level of the area? Is there a college population looking for more off-campus housing? Um, and is that the type of community I want to run? Where are the major employment centers? Are new businesses and employment being generated in the area? I'm not sure if you're talking, Hakeem, but something's going going crazy with, with the video footage. I also want to interject with Opportunity Zones. They are driving development right now. Driving okay. development. Uh, so, and that's where I fall in. That's, so I'm in an Opportunity Zone and that's when, as soon as we, we were deemed that, we started, that's when I think the process for privatization started. Hmm. So this is uh, this this is a fucking gold mine right now. So wait, what? It, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I missed it. But Danny, did you did you hear what it said about opportunity zones? No. What did it say? Oh no, well it didn't say anything about opportunity zones here. But I'm just letting you uh, guys know that that's actually right now that's the that's the tax incentive that's going on at this moment. What what's what it was implemented in 2018. And that's where the, the, the bulk of like a lot of the development into a, especially like new businesses and, and apartment buildings are going or from that's, that's like the derivative, the whatever you call it, whatever. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I could tell. Can you send me the, uh, the, the 2018 statute that got the law that got passed in Twitter? If you have a link to that, so yeah, in in regard to what broke, we're so. looking for, yeah, never. Okay, sorry for the interruption. In <laughs> opportunity zones, every state has <laughs> several. Oh, no every state is allowed to, you, like, to, to, no, 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 no. to declare a certain amount of opportunity zones. Mine is one for New York State. So in your state, there could be seven or something. So figure out where those are. And with that, the opportunity zone is you take your, 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 um, oh, oh. when you, when your cat, when your assets appreciate, instead of, uh, cashing them out and then paying taxes, the, what is it called? The, oh God, I'm losing my train of thought. Yeah. The, Correct. So instead of paying capital gains taxes, you can take that investment and then you can reinvest it in an opportunity zone called a qualified opportunity fund. 
and then it and then the they're called capital gains. There we go. Cap, and so there's packages. like a schedule with it. So for the longer you keep that money in the opportunity fund, the the greater your return. Yeah, and that's using a and the less tax exchange. you pay up almost no taxes on it if you keep it for the full ten years in the fund. Just saying. So I mean like there's millions getting I mean you can find out for your state how much is already in these funds. Uh, and then you could see where they're going off to, what's being built. And you'll you'll also see that there's stadiums getting built, tennis courts, golf courses, shit like that. And then um, apartment buildings with five affordable housing units. You know what I mean? So that's that's what's getting built in Opportunity Zone. Okay. All right. I'm going to continue here um, with the points. It asks, are new businesses and employment being generated in the area? What other communities are in the area that a prospective tenant will consider, and are they the same class as the community you are developing? That is luxury, blue-collar, or subsidized housing. What can I build, and how much rent can I charge? Will I enjoy owning and managing the community? In 1999, we took over the development of an 80-unit townhome community and a town with lots of retirees. 24 units had been built, and only two had sold in more than a year. What's that, BK? Oh, am I unmuted? My bad. Yes. And only two had sold in more than one year. When we inspected the project, it was obvious why the sales weren't happening. Each unit had two bedrooms with a detached garage. When homeowners came home, they would park in the garage and have to walk sometimes hundreds of feet through the property to enter their front doors. A review of other competing townhomes for sale in the area revealed they all had attached garages. Homeowners park, get out of their cars, and take a few steps right into their homes. Is it any surprise why an elderly buyer would prefer the competition? When we took the project over, we bought the two sold units back and converted the entire community into an apartment project, offering it for rent, not to retirees, but to the people who worked in the town. We completed construction of the 80 units, leased the property to full occupancy within six months, and operated the project at a profit until we sold it four years later. That's understanding the niche and developing for it. The original developer of the townhomes clearly did not understand the market niche which meant he did not understand the buyer. The most beautiful project imaginable will not rent if it's built in the wrong place. A luxury apartment community may be your dream, but if you build it in a blue-collar area, you won't be able to lease the community or be able to charge enough rent to make the economics work. Matching the needs of the community with the project you develop is crucial to your success. Research and know your demographics before you proceed. Only research will give you the perspective that you need before you take another step forward. 
Um, so again, I want to continue to drive this point home that a lot of the stuff is going to be out of our scope that we're reading at the current moment, right? But by learning about it, we can start to see what all the possibilities are. It's kind of like um, carrying a backpack full of rocks up a mountain, a very steep mountain. When you take the backpack off and start walking on flat ground, things will seem much more simple. So that's what we're doing. We're climbing up a mountain, a very steep mountain, with a backpack full of rocks and maybe a tether to like a bungee that's trying to pull us back down so that once we get to flat ground with no burdens, we can take off. All right, continuing. Where to build your community. You've most likely heard it before in this book and likely everywhere else. Location, location, location. As you are standing on that dusty lot filled with years of accumulated trash, a couple of homeless camps and overgrown weeds, envision where the main entrance to your community will be located. Pretend you are driving in and driving out. Look around you. What do you see? If the view is of an industrial complex across the street, a junkyard, or poorly maintained buildings, don't just brush it off. Signs like that generally mean the area isn't going to entice many people to choose your community no matter how beautiful you make it. On the other hand, sometimes negative factors like these can be minimized. We developed an apartment project on a site where our due diligence revealed that a processing plant was located just half a mile away. The plant took used grease from restaurants and processed it to be reused. When the plant was operating, it stunk to high heaven. But the site was an excellent infill location to a good school district. The clincher was when we discovered that the processing plant was in the midst of implementing rigid pollution control measures. The clincher was when we discovered that the processing plant was in the midst of implementing rigid pollution control measures. We were able to pull off a really nice, affordable apartment community in an underserved area with confidence. Research paid off. While a panoramic view of the mountains or ocean may not be possible or even relevant to your community plans, don't forget to envision what residents will see and feel coming home. Is it welcoming? Does it feel safe? Would you want to call that home after a long day at work? Before beginning a multifamily development project, ask, ask yourself these questions. Lifestyle and convenience. Will your community have good exposure to drive-by traffic? Heavy drive-by traffic is a plus when you are trying to attract potential tenants, but possibly a negative for residents concerned about traffic noise. On the other hand, the cutest, most affordable community in town could suffer high vacancy rates if it is located on the street no one can find, even with a blitz of advertising. How far from the major thoroughfares will your community be, and how easy is the access to them? Is that important? Is that important for the type of community you are planning to build? How easy will it be for residents to get to work, school, shopping, the movies, etc.? Where are the schools in relation to your community? What is the reputation and rating of those schools? What are the transportation options to and from those schools? What are the employment opportunities in that area? What mass transit is available to help your residents get to work? Is the major downtown area easily accessible? Social amenities. Are parks, movie complexes, theaters, arcades, and sports facilities an acceptable distance from your proposed community? What is the flavor of the part of town you are considering? How does your apartment community plan fit in with the area? 
neighborhood amenities? Is shopping in close proximity? Is a major grocery store nearby? It matters for those 10 p.m. milk runs. Development of your site. Let me take a look at how much more of this I have to go. Okay, good. That's not bad. All right. Development of your site. By this point, you understand that you must choose a site based on your demographic research. Now consider your site from the development perspective. How easy will bringing the project literally out of the ground actually be? This is perhaps the most critical analysis you will need to do, and it is the one that will have the biggest effect on your development costs. Is the site fairly flat with a minimum of site prep work required, or does the site have some geographical features that are interesting but challenging? Flat sites are wonderful, and they typically will allow for the highest density. That is, they allow you to construct the most units per acre. Drainage becomes your biggest concern with flat sites because water will not flow off them without effort. On the other hand, a lovely hilly piece of land can make for an interesting project. But on the downside, density will be a challenge, and the geography itself can run up the site development and infrastructure costs very quickly. Foundational structures like retaining walls can take a huge chunk of your development budget in the blink of an eye. The point is, each site provides its own set of challenges and opportunities. You need to understand how they affect the number of units you can build and at what costs. When considering the location of your community, consult with your local governing bodies regarding zoning and other development requirements as soon as you can. Your local government development department can help you determine the required process for gaining permission to develop your project. Be wary, though. I've found cities and counties are notorious for seeing new development as a significant revenue source, and they look for opportunities to solve their problems and budget overruns at your expense. For example, some will make approval of your project contingent upon the city or town getting concessions from you. You need to understand the law and the regulations so you know what a government jurisdiction can and cannot legitimately require. Do not take their word as gospel without checking, and most of all, be prepared to do battle on every issue. Can you tell that I speak from experience? During the approval process for one project we developed, the city initially required us to build a traffic median in the middle of a six-lane street, the major highway through town, with the excuse that the median was required to provide safe access to the proposed apartment community. Medians are not cheap. We were going to incur several hundred thousand dollars in off-site expenses that threatened to jeopardize the entire deal. However, after many sleepless nights, a great deal of contemplation and consultation with our development team, we were able to determine that, although we were required to augment the street improvements to provide safe access, we could do it by slightly redesigning the entrance to the project and restriping the street, a cost of only $3,000. Just as important as knowing how to work with the city or town is knowing how to work with the utility companies. On your to-do list, it should be checking with the utility companies that will serve your community for availability of their services, hookup fees, development fees, and monthly service rates. I've seen too many novices get surprised by utility access and hookup issues. Another often overlooked detail is checking on the possible future infrastructure requirements of your site. For example, if your site is on a heavily traveled two-lane street and the city decides to widen it to four or six lanes, 
You will be assessed for your portion of the cost, and you will lose part of your site for the right of way. Be prepared for these issues by knowing they can happen up front, and then plan your development accordingly. Oh, and let's not forget the remote possibility, which in some parts of the country isn't that remote, that your site could have archaeological or environmental significance. Find out what rules are governing those discoveries in advance of even buying the land. Remember, finding out that your site is the home of those endangered duck-billed humpback pygmy field mice or the next Machu Picchu could either kill your development entirely or put it on hold for an indefinite period of time while experts complete extensive studies and develop mitigation plans. Another tip that every developer must know is the value of checking for any riparian or wetland conditions on the property, as well as drainage, flooding potential, and soil conditions. You don't want your beautiful new community to be a, in a lake when the summer rains come. And you don't want to find your building slowly or not so slowly sinking into the ground because of poor soil conditions. When evaluating a site, you must consider all these factors. I know there are quite a number of them, and I can't stress enough that each site has its own nuances. As a developer, you must be prepared to spend the money to do a proper evaluation. It's pretty easy to see the cost implications if you don't. Your development team. Our company, in our company, Ken and I have worked out clear guidelines regarding who will handle which areas of development and management based on our respective professional backgrounds. At the same time, we constantly consult with each other and make joint decisions. If tip, you do not have you do not have the expertise to handle all the development, management, and construction phases for the community you want to build. You need to start by putting together a development team with the strongest expertise in each area you can find. We're always certain to clarify upfront and in writing who will be the team leader and who will make the final decisions. That holds people accountable and gives them ownership. It's fine to use people you know, but this is not the time to give your sister-in-law's cousin his first break in the development business. Your architectural team. <clears throat> the next person on your team will be your architect. Ideally, this will be someone you have worked with in the past and have traveled a lot of rocky roads together. This person will have the experience and relationships with the governing jurisdiction to guide you through all the government requirements. He or she will also coordinate all the other. He or she. He or she will also coordinate all the other design professions that you need, and will provide the site plan, design and building elevations, unit plans, project amenities, and construction drawings with specific specifications. Other members of your team that your architect will coordinate include mechanical engineer who will design the plumbing and HVAC systems, structural engineer who will design the foundations, the framing requirements, and the roofing system, electrical engineer who will design both the underground electrical systems and the building electrical requirements, civil engineer who will design the grading requirements for your site, including drainage, parking lot, and zoning compliances. Your contractor. The contractor will be the guy or gal who is going to take all these drawings, plans, and specifications to and construct your community. 
Think of him or her as translating the two-dimensional plans into three-dimensional buildings, from overseeing the grading of the site all the way through handing over the keys of the finished units. You will want a general contractor licensed in the state in which you are building and who hires only licensed subcontractors in each trade qualified to do the work. Reputation and past performance of the general contractor will be your main guideline for this professional. Once chosen, you will want to have a signed contract between you as a developer owner and the general contractor that will delineate the terms of the relationships, including compensation. So as you guys can hear so far, this is a, a daunting task. This, and, and because this section is coming as profits from the ground up, and um, it's, uh, it's much more than the initial project that I'm going to be taking on, and maybe some of you will be taking on if you decide to join me. Because the first thing to do is to actually, um, one, find a project that is a four-unit building and either have... Um, it moved in by people on the team, or it should be already rented and will work as managers of it, collecting the rents and profits from it, and then maybe slowly moving one by one as people move out, or um, simply if someone moves out, renovate the place, put some equity in it, and then rent it out for a higher, a higher rent, and continue to read the profits from that in order to move over into getting another one and or starting a project from the ground up like this is talking about. But we gotta start small at first. Continuing, common construction contracts, lump sum or fixed price contract. In this type of contract, the contract agrees to provide specified services for a specific price and receives this sum upon completion of the project or according to a negotiated payment schedule. If the actual cost of labor and materials are higher than the contractor's estimate, his profit will be reduced. If the actual costs are lower, the contractor will get more profit. Either way, the cost to the developer slash owner is the same. Cost plus a fixed fee contract. In this contract, you as the owner developer will pay the contractor the actual cost of construction plus a fee to the general contractor. If the actual costs are higher than the estimate, the owner must pay the additional amount. If the actual costs are lower, then the owner gets the savings. Guaranteed maximum price contract. This contract states that the owner developer will pay for the cost like a cost plus contract, but the contractor will guarantee that the cost will not exceed a maximum amount. In the event that the actual costs are lower than the estimates, the owner keeps the savings. As cost rise, the owner must pay for the additional cost up to the guaranteed maximum. Thereafter, the contractor pays. The construction team. For as important as a general contractor is to the success of any project, understand that the success or failure of your construction relies heavily on the expertise of the entire construction team. I cannot stress enough the importance of hiring a qualified, financially stable contractor who employs a bright project manager, assigns experienced superintendents, and hires excellent tradespeople. Carefully scrutinize each person who will be involved with, you, with the construction of your project. Not only is that your prerogative, it's your job. In addition to your general contractor being licensed in the state of your project, he or she must also be fully insured and bondable. Another tip, and I know everyone needs to get their start somewhere, but give careful consideration before you agree to allow your general contractor to break in a new superintendent or project manager on your job. 
His limited experience in the field may cost you money and may even jeopardize the quality of your finished product. So just who constitutes a construction team? Your team should include a strong project manager. It is this person's responsibility, among other things, to decide which subcontractors will be awarded the contract for the project and to set the construction budget. The project manager studies the plans and specifications submitted by an architectural team or the architectural team and based on his or her experience will often suggest adjustments or changes in the plans. A few choice suggestions made by a, perspe a perceptive and confident project manager can save you thousands of dollars in the construction budget without affecting the quality or the appearance of the finished project. Each project has at least one on-site superintendent based on the size and scope of the project. The superintendent is responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of all the subcontracting trades who will be working on the project at any given time. Superintendents set the schedule for the trades to ensure the proper flow of work. There is a sequential order to construction. For example, you don't want the painters arriving before the drywallers have finished putting up the walls. And you certainly don't want and you certainly want to make sure all the necessary site work, such as grading, compacting, etc., is done before the concrete folks come to pour the building pads. This right on time kind of scheduling takes a person who has been around the block and knows how long things take to complete. It takes a person who knows that what the demand is for the various trades and knows the appropriate lead times. It also takes someone who can forcefully, yet professionally, get you the best treatment from the subs. Between the subcontractors, superintendents, and project manager, this construction team is responsible for continued communication with the architect and engineers and for attending to the construction methods and details that don't always show up on the drawings, yet become obvious as construction is in progress. They should also be in continual communication with the testing technicians, building inspectors, financial institutions inspectors, and of course, you the owner developer. Remember, this is your baby and you cannot deny the fact that you are ultimately responsible for the design and construction pros. The project manager also has another very vital role. One, you will come to appreciate. He or she is the person responsible for keeping a close eye on the construction budget. That involves closely monitoring if or when a particular trade is out of sync with the budget and making adjustments before the close of the project. This is the person who looks out for your financial interest and communicates with you to discuss any overages. In construction, things often take longer and cost more than originally planned. So having a good project manager with good communication skills is a real plus. Where does the general contractor make his money? When you get your first glimpse of a construction budget, you'll notice a line item built in for a specified percentage of the overall construction budget for the contractor's overhead and profit. Remember, construction costs are negotiated between you and the contractor, so you need to understand all the components of the construction budget, including direct costs for labor and materials, subcontractors and general conditions, as well as profit and overhead. Finally, you are part of the construction team too. It's up to you to use every means available to make sure that the contractor bills the project correctly and pays his bills. This includes hiring third-party quality control inspectors requiring proof of payment for the materials and labor, such as lien waivers, and possibly requiring a payment and performance bond. Good Lord, there's a lot of stuff in here. I remember, again, I keep saying this, but these, are, these things are above our pay grade right now. We're going small with a smaller building and learning how to manage that to get profits from. 
so that that can spill over into bigger, bigger projects. But first, um, to ensure that not only um, later on there might be bigger projects for housing, but developing uh, the first thing into a cooperative living space where we can all run our various um, businesses and endeavors from uh, and taking away the burden of being in the rat race. All right. Almost done here. There are one, two, yeah. Just uh, six pages left, not that much. Your title company. Title companies have been mentioned several times in this book, and here they are again. Just as they play a role in acquiring existing property, they play a role in new development too. Here it is their job to hold all monies involved in the transaction of the land transfer in escrow. They also provide a title report and title insurance. The title company can help you by periodically checking to make sure that the contractor is paying his bills and that no liens have been filed against the pro project by a subcontractor. You don't want to have your buildings almost completed only to find out that there is a lien on the property from an unpaid sub. It happens. Your property management company. Contrary to what you might think, you'll need a property management company even before your project breaks ground. It is the property management company that will prepare the market analysis and determine the rents your company can reasonably charge. From there, they help you prepare a realistic operating budget. The way management companies make their money is usually based on a percentage of anticipated gross annual rents. Having an experienced property management company has been a true key to our success. The market knowledge and expertise it provides is something we would never dream of doing without. Speaking of property management uh, companies, guys, there's something interesting um, that maybe a lot of people don't think about in kind of moving beyond the rat race, first of all, to begin with, is um, I don't know if anybody's ever considered actually working for a property management company as an on-site property manager. Um, if you do your research, there are a lot of places that will hire on-site property managers who are there to um, basically work as a liaison between the complaints and issues and needs of the tenants and to pass it on to the, the repair people and things like that. Danny. Just in my opinion, I just don't know how to prove it and how, what the loophole yeah. was that allows him to also um, hold both subsidi subsidiaries, which is he has a he has a nonprofit and a for profit, Glencove Gardens and then Glencove Gardens Development, and he like he transfers money back and forth. Yeah. Hud, hud, hud dollars, I mean, hud dollars. Yeah, 
And what I, I was suggesting is maybe you'd like that information or um, need that information just from even your for area fun, too. Even if you're not going to do you it to find out what some areas, properties in your area might be looking for on-site okay. property managers of some kind. Um, yeah. Yeah, and also, I don't know if you guys know this, but a lot of storage facilities have on-site managers. So they provide you free housing as long as you manage the property for them. Yep. So that's what I'm talking about. These are either free or lower cost places to live as long as you agree to do the job of a property manager. It's, it's an easy entry level way to get into property management and learn the ins and outs of leasing and renting and managing a property while also getting um, a place to live. So anyway, there's that. All right, so, oh yes, your financing partner. Unless you are related to Daddy Warbucks or recently won the lottery, if that describes you, let's talk. <laughs> you will need to obtain financing for your project. You may qualify for various forms of financing from governmentally controlled financing to commercial banks to private money. All that's are what viable we have, and yeah. All come um, in public housing, that's what they do. It is possible to qualify for governmental or commercial bank loans that offer development and construction financing. These lenders historically will lend from 65% to 85% of the total cost of the project. The credit crunch of 2008 has changed those lending percentages, and developers are required to have more of their own cash in the deal. But regardless of the amount, those capital resources are options. However, governmental or commercial bank lenders will have a first mortgage priority, meaning that in the event of a default, they get paid first. Their interest rates are based on the current market. Another finance option is securing money from private lenders, meaning individuals wanting to invest in a real estate project as opposed to stocks or bonds. If you have a successful track record and a convincing business plan slash sales package for your proposed community, they will lend you the money with the condition that they receive an interest payment as well as a percentage of the profits from the operations of the completed project and any sales proceeds. Although private lenders are typically more expensive than traditional lenders, they are more flexible and may lend you a higher percentage of the project costs. Given the scope of your project and your financial contacts, your funding may possibly come from a combination of these sources, depending on how you structure the financing. Most of the projects Ken and I work on are structured to obtain a commercial bank loan for approximately 67% of the total amount needed for the project, with the remaining 33% contributed as the equity, which may come from investors, our own funds, or both. Your business plan. Obtaining financing isn't as easy as strolling into a bank with a good idea. It takes much more than that. In reality, to obtain financing, you will need a business plan. Business plans come in many shapes and sizes, and you can find numerous templates for them all over the Internet. But let me cut to the chase and tell you exactly what banks want to see. This eliminates all the unnecessary fluff that they don't read anyway. Here's what you need to include in your business plan. Executive summary, which explains the purpose of the project and gives a financial summary. You actually can write this first or last, but it's always the first few pages of your plan. Property overview, which includes a description of the site, unit mix, floor plans, site plan, elevations, and pictures of the site. Market overview, which presents neighborhood features, city economics, and the local apartment market. Financial pro forma, 
which includes development costs, construction costs, and projected operations income and expenses. Developer resume, which highlights your credentials. Development team resumes, which highlight the credentials of your architect, engineers, and property managers. Those are the components lenders care about and the sections they read. No amount of fluff or page volume will make up for a poor job assembling the details in these sections of the plan. Complete analysis and a realistic business case surrounding that analysis have a better chance of receiving funding. A sketchy plan based on incomplete research and analysis with blue sky projections won't. Not only is this document obviously important in your getting the financing for your project, the exercise of doing it helps articulate and establish your goals and objectives. It is the exercise that helps you determine if your project can ultimately be profitable. And let's face it, you should want to know that as much as the lender does. Will you qualify for a loan? Ken and I have spent our entire careers building our credit and financial standing, as well as building our network of contacts within banking and investing circles. These bankers and investors know our reputation and qualifications and are willing to entertain a development proposal that we present to them. Our track record and financial strength give banks and investors confidence that we can complete and operate a financially viable project. When searching for financing for your project, whatever your sources, you can count on them scrutinizing your background, particularly in these areas. What is your financial strength? If you are building the community under the umbrella of a company, what is the financial strength of the entire company? What is your development experience? Have you successfully built numerous projects before, or is this your first time at bat? If this is your first development, what attributes and strengths do you have that will put to rest concerns about your experience? Have you had one or more previous projects fall through in some way? What are the backgrounds, experiences, and strengths of your development team? Are they all solid and strong, or are there any weak links that could potentially cause hesitation from the source of your loan? What is the source of the equity you will be bringing to the table for this project? How much of your own money are you willing to invest in the project? The stronger your answers to each of these questions, the better the terms and rate of loan you will be able to qualify for. A lender will ask these questions regardless of the type of loan you are seeking, a construction loan or a permanent loan. And that leads us to our next subject, short-term loan versus long-term loan. A construction loan is a short-term loan with a term length from 6 to 36 months, depending on the size of your project and construction budget. Construction loans usually have variable interest rates and are interest-only loans. The lending institution holds your project as collateral during the course of the loan. In the event of default, you will lose your property. Construction loans are also typically personally guaranteed by the developer, meaning the bank has recourse to your personal assets in the event of default. Unlike with other loans, with a short-term construction loan, the lender will not hand over to you the full amount of the loan all at once. Rather, you'll receive it in monthly payments based on the percent of completion of your project. This process is called a draw, and each month your construction team will submit an application to the lending institution. The lending institution will send out an inspector to verify the work is completed, as stated, in a workmanlike fashion and, all, and that all local government inspections are complete and approved. Only with the inspector's approval will the lender issue that month's draw. After construction is completed, then you, the developer, will need to obtain a permanent loan. The permanent loan is a long-term financing that will require a monthly payment for principal and interest. The proceeds of the permanent loan are used to pay off the short-term construction loan and possibly repay a portion of your equity.
Sometimes a lender will provide a construction loan that will convert to a permanent loan upon construction completion. This has the advantage of reducing your financial risk. There's always the outside chance that you may have trouble getting long-term financing once the project is done. With a loan of this type, that financing is already in place. Financing terms can be very complicated. Our company never takes on a loan without thoroughly reviewing the loan documents ourselves, as well as having the documents reviewed by an attorney who specializes in real estate financing. Be sure you understand what you are ob obligating yourself to. A few final words. You, the developer, will put yourself on the line for the money to fulfill your dream, but you won't see your profit until the project is completed and operational. While the rewards of a well-thought-out and well-constructed project are fantastic in the end, it is a long journey, and there's a lot of risk along the way. The process I used for building my first home in 1976 for $29,000 and the communities we have built for more than $30 million are basically the same. Lots of time, research, due diligence, expenses, and sleepless nights. By the time we identify a site, analyze the market, hire the professionals, obtain financing, and start construction, we have invested huge amounts of time and money. Every day during the development process, a new challenge presents itself. It is a major commitment and financial risk to take on an apartment development with the prospect of financial reward in the distant future. The development process is complicated and frustrating, but also exciting and fun. You cannot anticipate everything, but you can succeed if you approach your project methodically. Get the best advice and help. Don't cut corners and never give up. The personal and financial rewards are unsurpassed. Hang on for a challenging adventure. Watch out for the duck-billed, humpback pygmy field mice and all the other bumps in this ride. You are either going to enjoy developing and building a new community as much as I do, or you will find that it isn't your cup of tea. Either way, I wish you success. And finally, Ross McAllister is a 30-year industry expert in real estate development and finance. He is a co-partner of MC Companies and oversees uh, investment analysis, development, construction, financing, business development, and client relations. He is a licensed real estate broker and a licensed general contractor. Ross has developed and constructed more than 4,000 apartment units in Arizona and managed condominium conversions in Oregon, Las Vegas, and Arizona valued in excess of $300 million. Prior to founding MC Companies with Ken McElroy, Ross was president of the McAllister Company, a real estate syndication firm and property management company. Ross believes in giving back and has served the real estate industry on various boards throughout his career, including the Office of the Governor's Arizona Housing Finance Authority Board. All right, that's it for that. Holy shit. Chapter four is going to be tomorrow, which is, uh, yes, that's Sunday. So we're going to be doing Sunday Church, which is by R. Craig Coppola, C-C-I-M-C-R-E-S-I-O-R. It's chapter four called Master Your Universe um, and Get the Lay of, your, of the Land. So that is it for this one here. Oh, good. It has fun fucking charts and graphs in it. Be awesome. Carnal, what's up, buddy? Hey, uh, I just put a couple of links in the chat for you, Danny. Um, I don't know if either of those will help you much, but there are some resources that might be available to you. So you have to take a look at them and see if you can benefit directly from them. But um, maybe it'll be something. 
you may even already be familiar or in their system. I don't know, but I just thought about looking for that because of because of my familiarity with my stepmom's 501c3 that helps women in similar situations. I was looking to see if there was something equal to that in your area, and there may be. So hopefully that will help a little bit, maybe. You guys see the cover of that book that I have on camera there? <laughs> the Poles yeah. of Real Estate, Secrets of Successful Real Estate Investing. This is the one that I'm going to get today. This because will help tremendously. I'm so sorry, Hakeem. Carnal, I just yeah. want you to know he's a really good find because I have to look deeper to see if I would qualify for sure, but I can ask them for help in paying the arrears that I need to come up with for the next in the next like 40 days. Uh, so this is actually what I've been tasked to do by my lawyer is I need to now like find as many like organizations that are willing to pretty much pay my arrears that I don't and I sent you my also the I forget what it's called, but it's what my lawyer drew up. Um, yes. Before, yeah. So when we went to trial, that's what she had submitted like the day of and that morning, because it was the day prior that I signed it, that she drafted it. And the judge denied, denied, denied the appeal or the request, um, the request to throw this away. Um, Oh shit, what was I going to say to you though? What was this about? Um, okay, so in there you'll you see that my lawyer explicitly said that I have overpaid. Uh, right. I long, yeah, so the arrears that I have, that they have me locked into, that I had to settle for, because my lawyer highly suggested highly suggested because my the judge was not he was he was he was really, really bad. He, no nowhere near and it wasn't but you don't even have to be sympathetic um there's just i had so much evidence that we were submitting and he he got fed up with the evidence that was being submitted and he literally like he 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 scolded my lawyer which she took very well and said for both my lawyer and the housing authorities lawyer to go outside the courtroom and go over the evidence. So he stopped the discovery. He stopped us in discovery. We had already started submitting the, 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 the previous appearance. Jesus. Um, and then he stopped, he, he stopped the discovery and when they came back, my my lawyer said they reduced from like nine thousand to seven thousand, and it was at that point because the the judge was like he was yelling at me. He accused me of being evasive, answering. He wanted to know why I didn't. What what did I do to find out that the housing authority actually? Sorry, baby. I can hear you. Go ahead. Just say what you were saying. 
she doesn't want me talking so loud. Every time I talk, she, um... Oh, it's too loud! I'm sorry. Let me give you a glass of okay? Popsicle. Popsicle? Okay. Let me give you a glass I'll be right back. I'm sorry, guys. Um, I didn't meet the... No worries. Take care of your kids. <laughs> um, the judge, I was going over, we were going over a work order. It's the only work order I've ever gotten in years from the housing authority. So every time there is an issue with the unit, you're supposed to call or physically go into the office. And they confirmed with the judge in the previous appearance that um, that that is actually, that is the routine for the housing authority. That is how, so that is how you request for work to be done. You call right. or you physically go in. There is no email. There's no certified mail. There's no other documentation. Um, so they had stopped, they stopped January, 2020 was the first extermination. They did not perform. And I made a big deal. I have had emails out the ass with my lawyer saying they did not come. They did not come. They did not come. He contacted them saying that what I was saying, they were fully notified about it. They came in February, but I wasn't home because I was working. And they left me a work order receipt. And then they put something on my door handle. And I saved those two things. So I was, I was looking at the evidence. I was holding it up for everybody, explaining what it was. And then I gave the background of this is what they left. And then the judge started jumping on me. Well, how do you know they were in the apartment? Is this what they do? And I said, yeah, this is, this is for as long as I know, I don't know when they're exterminating or not, if I'm not home, but I, I have to safely assume that that's what they're doing because that's in the contract. Like they have to, they can come in. And he was like, wait, so you're telling me you're okay with like, with, with people randomly coming into your apartment? Don't you want to find out exactly who came in? Who exactly went into your apartment in February? And I said, well, on, on the slip, it says Yay! Mo and Nelson. So I have to assume Mo and Nelson. What, how do you know it's Mo and Nelson? Did they tell you it's Mo and Nelson? Like he was, and, I, and I'm Why looking at you. Ex exactly, Carnal. I'm he was focusing on things that weren't relevant. Yes, yes. Thank you. I really wish I had this shit recorded, Carnal, because it, I couldn't believe how fucking hard he was going on just this. He had gone hard on something else, but this was the final straw. This was it. Because after that, that's when he said, he asked my lawyer, uh, Ms. Storm, uh, how, many, how many more photos are you submitting? And she goes, Your Honor, I don't know. I haven't counted all of them. Well, give me an estimate. And she goes, maybe 70. For roaches, he goes. And he's like, yes. She's like, yeah, for roaches. And then he doesn't see that. He thinks that it's just... Um, um, What's the word? Uh, he was he was trying to say that it looked like we were doubling up or something. And then she explained, Your Honor, we're going back four years. We're proving four years of uninhabitable of a uninhabitable unit. Um, and then and then he said, Nope, take those photos outside. 
talk amongst yourselves. I'm not taking any more roaches. When she came back, that's when she said, because I think she saw the way the way that he was about the work order. Um, I don't I think she she's familiar with the judge and she believes he would have, if anything, it, at most, he would have maybe reduced 25 percent. And she thought that seven thousand dollars was good. And then she said, pay the first three thousand and then I can raise hell. Because once I lock that in, then I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm safe. I've, I've already, I've, I've, I made the good faith payment of three thousand. Yeah, that's the word. The but they faith. really, I just want you to know that, like, okay, so seven thousand dollars in total really isn't a lot of money. And honestly, I think so too. But I don't have any earned income, so I can't claim tax. I can't file taxes. Um, so if I, if I did then I'd be a lot less worried and I think I can do this in a lump sum once I, I get my returns next year. Return. I don't know because I have, I'm, I have I'm no income. I, even really? if you have no income, you can still file a tax return. If you have tax right. liabilities, you can because you, that's how you get your tax credits and stuff like that for your children. Earned income credit and child tax credit. I, I haven't filed since 2021 and, that, and that's, that was filing for 2020. What do you call that's that's the tax year or the filing year whatever the filing year obviously so uh, the last time i filed was in 2021 for 20 and yes exactly from whatever and then you show that it's social security social yeah, security and then, and then you show that it's whatchamacallit uh you know, it's not enough to pay taxes on, but you can still just file a return on that. You know what okay. I'm saying? Yeah. Is it decide tax, taxable income? It's it just, no. like like Sometimes. even if I even if I was paid, you know, a thousand dollars this year, like that's not like there's a deduction that I can just use to not pay any taxes. But if for whatever reason I just need a tax return to make my life easier, like for a student loan thing, then it makes sense to just I've done that, even though returned to school and uh, I took out a loan and I tried I tried to save it for the court also but I was I had to live on it also this, uh, it sounds like I don't know whatever I just I know how that is shit I was making good money had the GI bill and uh, student or tuition assistance from my employer and I still fucked it all the way I'm sorry. But yeah, I'm, I understand. I, I know it's, I don't understand. Can, does anybody understand why Dickie attacked me? I don't, I don't get that. Like, what the fuck was that about? What did I say that, that triggered him? Is that even relevant right now? I don't know. Like, what the fuck was that about? It's because you, the things you were saying don't um, don't match up with his understanding of life, and 
you're also a little harsh. But that's just you. I mean, the things that you say are very biting and critical, and um, it's confrontational. Not everything, right? I mean, is it that confrontational? I don't really mean it to be. No, but it, it comes off like that sometimes. But not everybody is equipped to be able to um, uh, respond a different way. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, a lot of you guys are, are really sensitive to that type of stuff when people disagree. So it's just, it is what it is. I wouldn't be concerned about it. Um, the only concern is um, maybe to think about, is everybody really... Uh, what does everybody really want? Are we, do we want the same things? Do we want to help others and ourselves and work as a community that helps bring everybody forward? Um, and if so, then we can kind of look past the, the small arguments and disagreements that, that happen. Yeah, I didn't, I, I, I don't remember any of those statements I made necessarily targeting anybody specifically. I just kind of made like um, offhand comments that seemed applicable to the scenario. And they were like, you know, little words of wisdom or parables or whatever that I've come across in my life that I felt like would maybe add a little bit of perspective or maybe, I don't know, like, I wasn't trying to be derogatory or judgmental in those statements. I don't know why. I don't know why he felt like I was attacking. Like he just said, I can't understand how you, what, like what you mean. I don't, but he never really actually got to the point of what he said that I was wrong about. Like, I don't, it was just like an ad hominem attack is kind of like what it felt like. I just don't understand what I did to deserve it. I don't know. I've never attacked Dickie, but he's attacked me now like three fucking times. And I don't know why. You attack, you attack people whenever you speak about something that doesn't resonate with them or feels like you don't understand them. Like uh, Danny got was sending stuff to you in the messages that kind of reflect. It's not easy, but. Well, reality is pretty fucking harsh. Sometimes you gotta, sometimes you gotta communicate some harsh language to make some harsh realities. Yeah, I don't know. That's just the way I grew up. You know, I just, I don't like to sugarcoat shit. You know, I don't know. It doesn't help anybody. At least in my experience. Fucking angel hair pasta. You know, that's my favorite, Danny. How are you going to make some angel hair pasta and not invite me for fucking spaghetti? What the fuck is that about? I feel like you did that on purpose. Like daughter I just put it in front of her and she said no fuck so 
And then so it's like food waste. <laughs> like it's, no. it's constant food waste with kids. Bullshit. No. Oh my god. No, 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 no. I know, I know. One Make time I and oh she my, god. my son threw up before. He fucking threw up when he was in second grade. Um, my ex was like, eat the beans. It was rice and beans. I'm really good at rice. Beans, uh, whatever, but they were good. Eat the beans. Colonel. Let him eat his puke. Oh, he's listening hey, to you guys. Danny, Colonel, check this out. So, Colonel, I just saw something that's somewhat relevant to what you were asking about why, um, for example, Dickie may have gotten upset. Listen to this. Um, this is from Gad Sayad. It says, um, any system that is built on a false understanding of human nature is doomed to fail. Building a society where the primary objective is to protect one's fragile self-esteem from the dangers of competition will only lead to a society of weakness, entitlement, and apathy. Life is necessarily competitive. to pursue a utopian vision of society where no one's feelings are hurt. So people's feelings are going to be hurt, and that's just a part of it. But we just have to move on from uh, from that. I want to, if you guys don't mind, I'm going to continue reading. Of, of, this is from the, the Capitalist Manifesto, because there's a lot of stuff in here that looks like it's even um, sort of relevant to this, this whole idea of the arguments and things that we have. Do you guys mind if I read that? All right. Um, this is a, called a cult of victims. Postmodern education is a culture of victims. So actually, I'll, I'll look at modern education first, which is before the quote that I just read. It says, postmodernist education is the educational philosophy in our schools today, which is education based on opinion and emotions rather than science, facts, and principles. That should concern all of us, since while we are entitled to our own opinions, we are not entitled to our own facts. Postmodern education is a culture of victims. As a counterpoint, Bucky Fuller's challenge to be architects of the future, not its victims. As Gad Sayad warns again and writes in The Parasitic Mind, these politically correct language initiatives are misguided and harmful. They create highly entitled professional victims who expect to be free from any offense, and they engender a stifling atmosphere where all individuals walk on eggshells lest they might commit a linguistic capital crime. Victim or villain. University of Toronto psychology professor Jordan Peterson had enough of what he saw as a campus culture where social justice warrior, left-wing radical political activists ran, ran rampant. He zeroed in on Canadian human rights legislation that prohibits discrimination based on gender identity or expression. Dr. Peterson was especially frustrated with being asked to use alternative pronouns as requested by trans students or staff, like Z and Zer, used by some alternatives to he or she. In his opposition, he set off a political and cultural firestorm that shows no signs of abating. 
as Lenin warned. We can and must write in a language which sows among the masses hate, revulsion, and scorn towards those who disagree with us. Now, I know, guys, a lot of people don't agree with Jordan Peterson, and some people might find him quite offensive, but I'll just continue. I view Jordan Peterson as a hero, right up there with General Patton. Modern education is a culture of fear and opinions, not a culture of learning. Postmodernism prevents us from learning from history by changing history, a culture of learning. I've often wondered what our schools would look like if Bucky Fuller ran the education, educational system. In his words, if I ran a school, I'd give the average grade to the ones who gave me all the right answers for being good parrots. I'd give the top grades to those who made the most mistakes and told me about them and then told me what they learned from them. I am inspired by our freedoms and the spirit of freedom that drove our founding fathers to protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All the signers of the Declaration of Independence knew they were putting their life, liberty, and happiness on the line when they signed that document, a document that defined a new nation, a democracy, not a monarchy that would one day become the United States of America. In 2020, the world is on the verge of losing the freest country in world history. President Ronald Reagan, 1911 to 2004, warned, freedom is a fragile thing, and it's never more than one generation away from extinction. It is not ours by way of inheritance. It must be fought for and defended constantly by each generation, for it comes only once to a people, and those in world history who have known freedom and then lost it have never known it again. The fight for freedoms. So how do we fight for our freedoms? We fight armed with education and by investing in ourselves and our futures. We fight for freedom in our homes by learning about capitalism, teaching capitalism, and practicing capitalism in real life. So again, that's all from the Capitalist Manifesto. God, all right, you guys might want to hear this. All right, so after the Fight for Freedom part, it goes, the second book in the Rich Dad series is called The Cash Flow Quadrant. It introduced that E stands for, on the left side, that E stands for employee, S stands for specialist, self-employed, and small business owner. On the right side, B stands for big business and brand, and I stands for investor and insider. The BNI Quadrant. B stands for big business, companies with 500 employees or more, and brand. For example, Warren Buffett prefers to invest in brands such as Gillette and Coca-Cola. He does not invest in startups in the S quadrant. I stands for investors who invest from the inside. Most employees and self-employed invest from the outside, generally in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and ETFs. There is much less freedom on the left side, the E and S side of the quadrant. There is more security in most cases, but less freedom. 
it is from the E and S side, the employee and self-employed side, that our freedoms are being stolen. For example, many people are threatened with being fired if they do not get the COVID vaccine. I see that as fascism. Hitler was able to get the Germans to murder Jews by forcing them to wear yellow stars. First, little atrocities, then mass murder. My new Arizona driver's license has a yellow star on the upper right corner. As far as I can tell, nothing else has changed on my license. Anyway, by the way, all of our licenses, if we choose to get the, um, those little stars are for um, the federal ID, which means that the IDs have been federally um, approved. You pay a little bit more money for those on the driver's license. Um, I got one of my, my, uh, my Virginia license. I started seeing them before. I didn't know what they were, but um, mine doesn't have a yellow star. It's a, it's a black star for the state of Virginia on the top right. But that's just a federal thing. You pay a little bit more for um, I forget what they call that. Uh, some kind of federal ID system they have. Uh, in 2021, Biden is calling for mass vaccinations. He is saying that the people who are causing COVID to spread and causing more deaths are the unvaccinated. Repeating Gad Sayad's warning. I argue that contrary to the current pandemic that we're facing with COVID, we faced another pandemic for the past 40 or 50 years. And in this case, the virus is not a biological virus, it's a mind virus. That's why I call these idea pathogens or parasitic ideas. And so, where do these ideas come from? So if we are trying to fight find out where the COVID virus came from, we're not allowed to say because to say where it comes from would be racist, of course. So where do these idea pathogens come from? They all come from the university ecosystem. In other words, as I always remind people, it takes intellectuals and professors to come up with some of the dumbest ideas. Question, are you saying the idea of go to school and study hard to get good job is a mind virus, an idea pathogen that steals our freedoms? Answer, I am. Question, are you saying our freedoms are on the business owner and investor side? Answer, yes, if you are on the B and I side, you do not need job security, steady paychecks, high taxes, and live with the fear of market crashes. People on the B and I side are not afraid of being fired for not being vaccinated. You can get to financial heaven on the E and I side, but it's at the price of your freedom. Employees, E's, and S's, self-employed, need, still need to work and make money. B's and I's do not need money. Freedom from assumptions. We often don't realize all the assumptions we've made without knowing it. Here are a few examples. I must have a job. I need a paycheck. Investing is risky. I'm not smart enough. I can't do it. Freedom from culture. Marx was obsessed with money. He was trapped by his culture. He did not know how to make money and was constantly begging for money. He even failed as a husband, unable to provide for his wife and child and survived by begging and borrowing from friends and family. Being an intellectual, he believed he was entitled. That is part of the entitlement culture of Marxism today. That is education today. In 2020, billions of people are following Marx's culture of entitlement. As Malcolm Gladwell states, who we are cannot be separated from where we're from. One reason many professional athletes and lottery winners are bankrupt within five years after earning millions is because money does not separate you from your culture. 
Personally, my transition from the employee and self-employed quadrants to the business owner and investor quadrants meant letting go of my poor dad's academic culture. Today, I respect both cultures, my poor dad's and my rich dad's. To make the change, I had to travel from poor dad's culture of the classroom to rich dad's culture, working as an apprentice in his business. As I've said, collecting rent for rich dad was a great education in the power of culture. As Maria Montessori or Montessori said, growth comes from activity, not from intellectual understanding. Freedom from history. Do not let yourself be a victim of history. In school, when history is studied, the emphasis is on memorizing dates and events. Then students regurgitate those dates and events like magic. And like magic, they are smart students, but they have learned nothing. Steve Jobs said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. By studying history, factual historical records, not fiction, and connecting the dots, you can see the future. By studying history, I understood the true intentions of President Franklin D. Roosevelt and President Richard Nixon. In 1933, FDR made it illegal for Americans to own gold. In 1944, the United States promised to back every U.S. dollar with gold. In 1971, President Nixon broke that promise, and printing fake money began. In 1972, I flew behind enemy lines looking for gold. I could see the future of fake money. In 1999, the Glass-Steagall was repealed. The Glass-Steagall Act was part of the 1933 Banking Act. The 1933 Act separated investment banks from mom-and-pop commercial banks. In 1996, the repeal of the Glass-Steagall turned the United States into one giant casino, putting mom and pop at risk. In 2008, the subprime real estate market crashed. Bankers made billions, and pop lost everything. In 2008, the U.S. deficit was $1.4 trillion. By 2020, the U.S. deficit had grown to $5 trillion. That means the United States imported $5 trillion more than it exported. How much is a trillion? If you were to spend $1 a minute, it would take you 34,000 years to spend a trillion dollars. It takes the Federal Reserve Bank less than a minute to print one trillion. The 50th anniversary milestone in 2021 of Nixon's 1971 decision to take the U.S. dollar off the gold standard is an important one, and we are feeling the, its impact today because on August 15, 1971, the U.S. dollar became a creation of debt and taxes. On August 15, 1971, savers became losers. In 2021, it's estimated that the United States will print another $4 trillion to keep the economy from collapsing. In 1972, I began saving gold, silver, and more recently, Bitcoin and Ethereum. If I need money, I use debt as money. That's because in 1971, the U.S. dollar became debt, and more debt I use as money, the less taxes I pay. In a letter to investors, on July 29, 2020, Pantera Capital CEO Dan Moorhead states, the United States printed more money in June than in the first two centuries after its founding. Last month, the U.S. budget deficit, $864 billion, was larger than the total debt incurred from 1776 through the end of 1979. As Fuller said, only two things are infinite, 
the universe and human stupidity, and I'm not sure about the former. There are approximately 700 employees with PhDs working at the Federal Reserve Bank. How can so many highly educated people be so incompetent? Have they not studied history? Maybe they should get a real job. Better yet, start a business. New estimates coming out of the Fed are calling for $150 trillion in bailouts. Bailouts are the name of the game. And making the case for socialism under the guise of protecting the environment. Dinesh D'Souza, an, American, an, an Indian-American author and documentary filmmaker, states, Academics think they are the truly smart people. They truly believe they are the most important people in society. When they look at an entrepreneur who owns 10 McDonald's franchises or a pest control business, and they, cons they consider those people inferior. A professor of romance language at Princeton earning $150,000 a year thinks it's outrageous. A pest control entrepreneur is earning $500,000 a year. To the academic, that is not fair. That is where socialism begins. My take on these points and bailouts is that the latest estimates coming out of the Fed are calling for $150 trillion in new government spending paid for by the taxpayers under the guise of protecting the environment when in reality it's pushing us towards their vision for a socialist utopia. Emotions and opinions are at the core of postmodern education. History is not. In 1983, after reading Grunch of the Giants, remember Grunch is Grand Universal Cash Heist, I began questioning my assumptions, assumptions that I did not even realize I had made. I remember when I heard Fuller say, there are four billion billionaires. My mind immediately said, that's impossible. I thought Fuller was nuts. How could everyone be a billionaire? Once I challenged my own assumptions, I got to work doing what Fuller suggested we do, which is ask ourselves, what does God want done? Fuller said, never forget that you are one of a kind. Never forget that if there weren't any need for you in all your uniqueness to be on this earth, you wouldn't be here in the first place. And never forget, no matter how overwhelming life's challenges and problems seem to be, that one person can make a difference in the world. In fact, it's always because of one person that all the changes that matter in the world come about. So be that person. Margaret Mead, 1901 to 1978, an American anthropologist said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. In words often accredited to Edmund Burke, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. In 1983, when Fuller asked, what does God want? I decided to question all the assumptions I had made, and I began teaching people what my rich dad taught me, how to be a millionaire, possibly a billionaire, without needing money. The first word I learned at the academy in 1965 was mission. In 1984, Kim and Blair joined me and together we set out to fulfill the mission. We left Hawaii for California and our capitalist manifesto began. All right. I really like the emphasis in pushing the idea home that um, that Bucky Fuller was saying there um, again and again, and other people said, you know, um, no matter how overwhelming life's challenges and problems seem to be, that one person can make a difference in the world. In fact, it is always because of one person that all the changes that matter in the world come about. 
So just remember that, guys. That's the place where we should be in. Life is challenging. It's hard. And it seems impossible. But if you really want to, you can do it. I'm continuing to go on. I'd rather get up than give up. I hope that you guys do too. Necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. Well, let's invent some shit. Well, that's good. I got to finish this. It's only 7.30 right now, so... We'll get the transition. All right, so Danny or one of you guys, or maybe I'll open up another room, but I'm going to shut this down so that we can keep it short for just this content, basically. And then we can just kind of hang out, and if any ideas come up, we can talk about it in another space. I can open one if you want. Doesn't matter. Yeah. And then um, Danny, uh, yeah, let's, let's do that. And I'll join. I'll join your room. I just want to make sure that this one is not so long because I'm, I'm doing these all in series, so that I can reference them. At least just put down a record that you know I've been creating them. So, so Colonel, go ahead and open up a room. Oh, he already left. BK and Danny, you guys got anything to um, say before I close it down? Colonel just left to go open up a room. All right. I'll um. I'll catch you guys in the next room that Connor's going to open up. I'll see you guys in a minute.